0: Hey, what's up guys? I know I don't usually introduce the show like this, but uh, this episode isn't actually a regular episode. It's a new show, the pilot of a new show uh, on a separate feed called Ash Falls. Um, And if you enjoyed this episode, then the next episode of this specific series is on its own feed, um, which I'll link in the description of this show. Um, But yeah, the new show is called Ash Falls and it's a partnership between me and Fiction Vortex. And it's in the same Uh, vein and style of of this show uh, with narration and and sound design Uh, so if you're a fan of Sonic Dawn uh, go check out Ash Falls it's now available, thank you Inheritance Written by Jeremy C. Schofield and presented by Fiction Vortex Narration and Sound Design by Alex Shiver and original music by Josh Fisher episode one sacrifice it's a cold and rainy night as i turn onto rosedale drive heading downhill both literally and metaphorically the rain is making me dull and tired just when i need to be at the top of my mental game not that there are many other types of night in nash falls in september blame it on el nino the monsoon global warming and just ignore the weather guy on channel 4 because the facts are plain In September, it rains. The call came in to bring my sorry ass down to the dock district for a meeting with the town's heaviest hitters. I can imagine a dim and darkened warehouse, with me standing like a supplicant in the star chamber below the betrothed players who want to see me. They are not good friends to have, but they make even worse enemies. In this town, the authorities and the criminal element are all drinking from a common pool, and the good guys always play from behind working from within a weak and shrinking framework of straight cops, righteous judges, and attorneys that stay bought once paid for. The bad guys don't need the law, and can be more direct to consumer. I take another left off the rail yards, running parallel to the docks. The scattered street lights are glowing with muted intensity through the surrounding mist, too thick to be rain, too thin to be fog. I pulled my four Taurus in behind a gleaming black Hummer parked on the street in front of an otherwise unremarkable warehouse. Two guys are standing guard at the front door, brandishing tactical assault weapons. MP5s, ignoring and being ignored by a marked police unit not fifty yards away. Ash Falls. The Wild West meets Nosferatu. I slide out of the car and cross the street to the warehouse, nodding to one of the gunmen as I enter. Once inside, I shake myself like a wet dog then walk further into the open building. Sure enough, five chairs up on a platform, Klieg lights behind the seats looking down on a center area intended for a witness or supplicant. Do these guys watch all the same movies or what? It takes me a moment to notice the center seat, the one that should be reversed for the main mover and shaker in this town, sits empty. The symbolism and absence of our city's most powerful millionaire casts a shadow over the meeting. Good evening, Brian. I hope our call did not inconvenience you. This from the smallest and least threatening of the platform figures. Dreyfus, his name was. A professor of anthropology, or archaeology, or underwater basket weaving or something at our local U. Why he runs with this crowd, more to the point, why they let him run with them, has always been a question for me. One I have never bothered to ask, of course. The fewer questions I ask, the faster I can leave. Hi, Professor. No, nothing that couldn't be interrupted. Are we waiting for Annis to arrive? I ask, nodding toward the center chair. A muffled snort from the right side of the platform, then a throat being cleared. A big body leans forward. Rowan Bale, a local millionaire, dock worker union boss, and around the bend tree hugger besides. He won't be joining us, Mr. Drake. He is… indisposed. He delivers this from beneath black, bushy eyebrows lips framed by a thick black mustache and Van Dyke beard, looking just like every bad guy in every western you've ever seen. Ha! Indisposed. Just plain disposed is more like it. This was a trace of a Colombian accent, from a slight, lanky, bronze-skinned man of indeterminate age. El Rey, he is called on the street, and his empire provides us with the majority of our drugs, guns, and prostitutes here in the city wet. The guards with the submachine guns outside would be his bodyguards. I raise my eyebrows in surprise at the information being conveyed. Are you gentlemen trying to tell me that Annis is no longer with us? I would have thought it'd be impossible to take him out without a team of Navy SEALs backed up by a flight of Archangels. El Ray nods. He is gone, and so are eight of his bodyguards. Whoever managed it brought some serious hardware, man. Nods and affirmative mumbles come from all but one of my four employers. The final member of the group breaks his arrogant silence. If we can dispense with these trivialities and commence our business, this delivered with an arched gaze framed by expensive manicured eyebrows, touched up daily at great expense, no doubt. They could not never grow that way. In fact, they can't grow at all. Leandro de Castillas, you see, is dead. Well undead, anyway. He claims some thousand-year-long heritage from France or Spain or something. An honest-to-God classic old-world vampire. Something about him has always struck me as a little off. Maybe the way he looks at me as a serf or a peasant or worse. What the hell is he doing here? Helping manage a city with around half a million people is beyond me. I'm sure he has a dark and brooding castle in the Alps or the Pyrenees. Bale clears his throat. Yes, well, in truth, Anis is no longer among us. We do not understand the circumstances behind his departure. His power was great. His resources beyond imagining. How one of us managed to perform this? One of you? I ask incredulous. Bale nods, unperturbed. Yes, it had to have been one of the four of us. Certain safeguards were bypassed that only one of the four of us would have been privy to. And this is where you come in, Drake. We need you to determine which of us is at fault here. I blink and take a deep breath. Jesus Christ," I muttered. Colonel Mustard in the library with the ball-pen hammer. Dreyfus snickers to himself, but the other three remain resolute. Maybe they never were kids. I shake my head as if trying to drive away an insect, trying to recenter myself. So you want me to investigate until I figure out which of you did this, then report back. Here? I can foresee some major life-threatening problems with this approach. Dreyfus leans forward. Precisely. Upon delivery of your report, we will determine how to best proceed. And you want me to deliver this report back to you all here? Not understanding my concern, Ray breaks in. Anything you need for this, you've got it. You want guns? Guards? Cops? Whatever? Just tell me and we'll make sure it's yours. Corregir rapidamente, entiendes? Oh, yeah, I understand all right. With a dramatic sigh, Leonardo chimes in. We have also agreed to double your already considerable professional rate. You would think someone a few centuries old would have learned a little patience by now. My opinion is that this effort is valueless, but I seem to be alone in that assumption. I put my hands up to stop the verbal flow, though the idea of two grand a day is not at all unpleasant. But I still have a couple of questions of my own. Do I get access to your crime scene? Rowan grimaces. It isn't quite a crime scene, since no crime has been reported to the police. A body is required for a homicide investigation, but we will see that you have access to Annis' former domicile. I take a deep breath, then plunge in. So, I understand the gig, okay? I start, looking at each of them in turn, but what I don't get is, is what happens when I find your theoretical killer or killers. That would be our problem, yes? Dreyfus again. What is up with the other three letting him jump in like this? Is it amateur night at the heavy hitter's club? Yeah, I understand, but let me lay it out for you. I find the smoking gun, turn in your villain. Those of you that are righteous on this lay it down on him, I guess. But what is to prevent his organization from taking it all out on me after this report is delivered? Dreyfus makes another economical gesture, somewhere between a sigh and a shrug. You already enjoy certain protections, do you not? I shrug, not being willing to explore that boundary in this company. But if it should come down to that, you've got resources on the other three of us to protect you, you see. However, if you choose not to undertake the investigation, then you have all of us lined up against you while we look for another investigator. Is that clear enough? I nod, caught somewhere between fear and disgust, nothing like employee incentives. Far overhead, the waning moon shines down the clouds covering Ash Falls. Its faint and glowing face is reflected back by the lake above the city, while tiny moon images are refracted back from the river that runs fifty miles to join the Pacific. The night embraces half a million souls along both banks of the river, a population that locks their doors, bars their windows, but curiously, never seem to muster the desire to leave. Ships arrive from the ocean. Trains haul shipping containers away north, east, and south. Tractor trailers travel to and fro along the interstate, but something, whether a malaise or illness or a spiritual anchor, keeps the residents calm, silent, and malleable. Unwilling to be displaced from their homes in the name of safety or freedom, they are nothing more than sheep, waiting in their pen, unaware that, not having shepherds, their flock is instead being watched over by the wolves. My mind is whirling, and I don't even notice the figure huddled in the rain sitting on my doorstep until I almost step on her. She turns to look up at me, and I start back, and I'm glad. Glad she must think it was an unexpected presence that surprised me. Not the sheer fact that it's her, arriving here and now. The perfect ending to a perfect day. We look at one another for a minute, neither moving to kiss, embrace, or otherwise greet one another. All those things you would expect lovers to do after a long absence from each other. After a moment, I clear my throat, staring to the intense green eyes rimmed by running mascara. The effect makes her look as if she's been crying. Maybe the rain, maybe not. Jess, where did you come from, and how did you find me, is all I managed from the opening salvo after a four-year silence. I don't know. Maybe I asked around, she asks sounding for all the world like a flirting teenage girl. Or maybe I gave Steve a call to find out. This sends a shiver down my spine, and I take a step backward, reminding myself to unclench my fist. No, I don't think that is it, Jess. She somehow misses my reaction to this and continues trying to banter. Why not? You think Steve wouldn't take my call? No, he wouldn't. Steve is dead, Jess. She looks as surprised as I have ever seen her, then looks down for a moment. I didn't know. I'm sorry. Whether for my loss or for the lie, she doesn't clarify. We wait for an awkward moment more, until I give up and break the silence. What do you want, Jess? It sounds more like a whine than a stern rebuke, but I gave up on presenting myself the way I want to be around Jess a long time ago. Getting out of the rain would be nice, she retorts. Always a wise ass. As the streetlights reflect off her face, I notice her collarbones are protruding inside the neck of her ratty T-shirt. It looks like she is eating, along with whatever else she's doing. And with that, my defenses collapse. I was always a sucker for starving strays. Fine is the best I can manage without starting an hour-long rant on everything wrong with her, with me, with us. I turn and unlock the door, then gesture her inside as if she was a Park Avenue apartment rather than the old warehouse converted into a series of loft condominiums. She walks in and I follow her, careful to maintain some distance between us. I hang my coat on the rack by the door, not caring about it dripping on the floor right now. When I turn to face her, she is already deeper in my home, looking at the Ego Wall, mainly pictures of my brother Steve and I in better days. Jess is in more than a few of them, usually standing between the two of us and smiling. She always did love being the center of attention. She turns to face me one eyebrow raised no new photos here brian haven't you done anything worth talking about in the past few years nothing i would want to photograph no with that i step around her to the other side of my tiny dining room table careful not to touch her getting a solid object between the two of us i am not a man who is susceptible to feminine wiles but she has always been my kryptonite in ragged and dirty clothes with running makeup and looking like she hasn't eaten in a week I can still feel her pulling me toward her center of gravity. She has the strength. I have that weakness. So Jesse, you're out of the rain. What do you want? She stops looking at the photos, and a sad smile crosses her face when she notices I'm across the table from her. Maybe I just want to see you. I shake my head. No, you didn't. After four years of nothing? nah. you want something. Her smile turns down a little at the edges, and hard lines emerge from her face. They weren't there the last time I saw her. Fine. I need some help with something. I just need- I put a hand up to stop her. No, Jess. Whatever it is, no. There's nothing left of us for you to trade on. You made your choice when you decided to bail out after you and Steve, and this is as far as my grand soliloquy gets. Just as I'm preparing to let her have it for the last decade of torment, the door opens, and two men walk through the front door which I have neglected to lock behind us. I take a step backward, taken by surprise. At the same time, I sense, rather than see, Jesse scurrying behind me as I take a look at my latest unwanted visitors. One is big, tattooed, and muscular, maybe borrowed from Central Casting for the latest show involving motorcycle gangs. He stands behind a darker-skinned and better-dressed counterpart, your typical street duo, muscle and shooter. I make a note of distinguishing features and tattoos, so I can complain to Elray if I should live through this and get a chance. I ease back toward the table as I gesture at the dripping coat on the rack. Wallet is in the inside pocket. Take what you want and leave. If you feel like being nice, you could drop the driver's license on your way out. I hate standing in line at the DMV. The shooter smiles, displaying a hideous grin with fake diamonds and set into his front four teeth. Nah, man. You don't have to wait in line. We ain't here for your money. We're here for the girl. Amateurs, these two. They should have never given me a chance to get this close to the table with my hands out of their line of sight. I slide my Glock 27 out of the holster, attach to the underside of the table and have it pointed between the shooter's eyes before he can blink. It is a small gun, and I always feel a little self-conscious while I aim it, my pinky waving around in the breeze as if I were holding a teacup. I try to suppress the feeling and pay attention to the business at hand. Not sure what you clowns were thinking, but it's time for you to go. Next time. Check in with your boss, and have him check with Ray before you walk through my door again. Freelancing is bad for your health. The shooter snorts. Not impressed by the gun, or the mention of El ray Ray? Please. He spits on my floor for emphasis. He ain't nothing in this town anymore. What are you going to do with that little toy gun, anyway? What am I going to do? I'm going to put two quarter-sized holes in your head, and still have four rounds left over for your mouth-breathing friend. The real question is... What are you going to do? Are you leaving? Or is this about to get ugly? The tension in the room escalates for a moment, but just as I'm thinking about exhaling and pulling the trigger, something changes. The shooter nods. Then they start backing out the door with as much swagger as they can muster, keeping me in sight, trying not to look like a couple of dope fiends who have just had their lives threatened. You say so, man. We'll be watching. No way to protect your chica forever. After that parting shot, I walk to the side of the steel security door and kick it closed, not wanting to silhouette myself in the doorway. After engaging both deadbolts, I turn to pull my cell phone out of my jacket, cursing myself from being so distracted that I didn't secure the damn door in the first place. I punch a number on speed dial, then hold the phone to my ear with my shoulder. With my left hand, I gesture-jest towards a chair, her eyes never leaving the pistol still in my hand. I take a brief look through the window in the street outside, parting the shades with my pistol. Nothing. Three rings before anyone answers. Must be a busy night. Yeah. Boredom drips from his voice, though the phone runs down my arm, that rainwater from my jacket. Clarence? Drake. Two street boys just walked into the loft and tried to boost a lady friend of mine. Oh yeah? He now sounds interested. You and the lady okay? Yeah. I persuaded him to make better life choices. <laughs> and now you need some clean No, they walked out. A snort. Whether amusement or disgust, I can't tell. I keep telling you, you're too soft, Drake. No one gets in my crib and threatens me and my woman, then gets to walk out. I was busy. I don't multitask well. Besides, that's what I have you guys for, right? Yeah, I knew you. He pauses for a moment, and I can hear the vague thump of subwoofers and crowd noise in the background. So, you need some boys, or you want a squad? Send a squad. I can give him a damned accurate description of these clowns. There weren't anyone I've seen around before. Alright. Boy and Blue will be there in ten or so. Lock up and stay strapped till I get there. Try not to create any more problems in the meantime. Already on it, Clarence. Tell the boss I said hi. Alright, like he wants to hear from you. With that, the call disconnected. I turned back toward the table, walking under the watchful eyes of my brother's police academy graduation photo. He was the one that taught me never to be more than three steps from a gun anywhere in my house. Just like most things, he was right. I put my pistol down on the table, grab a chair and spin it around to face Jess, and straddle it, resting my arms on the top of the chair's back. Right now the last thing I want is my arms full of weeping ex-wife. Okay, Jess. You now have my full attention. What the hell do those guys want? The downtown bars are full tonight. The dream of chemical amnesia, or intimate shared fear being pursued by those who can afford it. More dangerous forms of forgetfulness are being sold on the street corners, to be taken away into cars and alleys, then injected, smoked, or swallowed until peace is achieved. The chemical respite is only so long, leaving in its place desire for more a new partner, another drink, a different drug. Escape is never purchased, only rented. As long as life exists, the fear will return. Here, those who seek a permanent solution through ending their own lives might find that within a day or two, Their torment is renewed, now with a vicious and thirsty edge. She takes a deep breath, as if to steady herself, then looks at the pistol resting near my hand. Put that thing away, you know I hate them. I shake my head, it's staying in reach until I think we're safe. My house, my rules, now stop preaching and start talking. She looks down at the table, then over my shoulder, refusing to look me in the eyes. If she were a normal person, I would say she was feeling guilty. Since she is Jess, I know she's playing for the cameras, trying to hit me for dramatic effect. Any second now she's going to. Right on cue. She shoots to her feet, the chair squeaking across the hardwood floor. I need to leave. It was a mistake to come here. She makes no move toward the door though, watching for my reaction instead. I shrug. If you really want to walk out into the waiting arms of those thugs, suit yourself, Jess. That gets her to look me right in the eyes. I went off script and didn't beg her to stay. After a moment of indecision, she sits back down, pulling the chair back up to the table. I didn't mean to put you in danger, Brian. I thought if I came here… Her voice trails off, then she gives me a crooked smile. I don't know what I thought. I thought you would fix it, make it better. I nod. Sure you did. I have a reputation for fixing it. Why don't you tell me what it is I'm fixing this time? Another deep breath, and then her shoulders slump. She looks back down at the table, but at least she starts talking. You know what I am now, right? This is not spoken so much as mumbled. A junkie? A police informant? A hooker? Which of your jobs are you referring to? She winces at my summary but carries on. I was referring to my habit. You keep your ears open, right? I nod, unwilling to say anything that might interrupt her. Well then. You know there is some new product on the street, right? As it happens, I do know. Info has been making the rounds, both in law enforcement and in the criminal underworld. No one seems to know what the source of this new product is. Are you talking about red smoke? I ask. She exhales and nods, looking relieved that she doesn't have to explain further. Yeah, I have heard of it. Is that what you're using these days? She smiles, looking animated for the first time since she arrived. It's incredible, Brian. It's smoother than silk, makes you feel good, you know, not weak. I do the best I can to control my face, but it is hard, listening to her talk about crack like a connoisseur. You don't even have to shoot it, you can just smoke the stuff, makes you feel like you can do anything. I even forget to eat when I'm high. Best thing is, it lasts for days, you aren't hitting every few hours. My skepticism kicks in, and it only costs as much as 5 or 6 days worth of crack, right? She shakes her head. That's the thing, Brian. It's cheaper than normal product. I don't understand it either. My patience is starting to wear a little thin. It's been a long day. So again, what do you need from me? And why the heck are street rats chasing you into my condo? Do you owe somebody money? She shakes her head. No, forget about them. I don't owe anyone anything. I just had a bad time recently, and I think I might have seen something. A few moments pass as I weighed out the dramatic pause, and then she continues. I think I might know where this new stuff is coming from, Brian. Like where it's being made. I know enough about the police department in Ash Falls that I don't bother to ask why she didn't take the info to the cops she's a confidential informant for. Two guys walk in here and threaten to abduct you, and I'm supposed to forget about it? And what am I supposed to do with info on where red smoke is coming from exactly? I don't know. It's just creepy. I sigh again. So what's the big secret, Jess? Just as the rotating red and blue lights pull up outside, she takes a deep breath and takes the plunge. Brian, do you believe in vampires? I am thunderstruck for a moment, and it is all I can do not to look over her shoulder at Steve's photo on the wall. It sounds like she never found out. Just like the rest of us ignorant fools in this godforsaken town. I take a deep breath, then stand at the sound of a nightstick being banged into my security door. Vampires? No, Jess, I don't. Guess you'll have to try that line on somebody else. With that, I turn my back and move to the open door before this cop leaves a permanent dent in it. Something exists here. In the long miles between Portland and Sacramento, a black hole of sorts. It draws to itself all that is evil, all that mankind has reviled and hidden from since the light of consciousness revealed itself to humankind. It calls out to broken dreams, forgotten idols, and the avatars of man's darkest desires, saying, here you can find what you are looking for, here you will be protected and nourished. Here your strength may grow again to what it once was during the days of mankind's darkest imaginings. For here, in Ash Falls, the worship of fear has taken hold once again defeating the promise of science and reason, and replacing hope with the huddling of bodies pressed together in the dark, each person praying that someone else will be taken. The morning sun rising over the dam is burning a hole straight through my sunglasses and into the center of my hangover. The acrid convenience store coffee is almost as bitter as my mood, as I stand around the parking lot of the windowless block of concrete that used to be the home of Annis Black. Hurry up and wait, just like always. It was close to 1am before the interview with the cop wound up and I almost got him out of my house. He got about as complete a physical description of a pair of suspects as he ever received, and I got plenty of assurances about how crime enforcement was being stepped up in our neighborhood. The fact that I had to call in a favor from a drug lord's concierge to get a unit to show up in less than an hour was never mentioned. I also persuaded him to take Jess into protective custody overnight, hoping she might get a meal and some medical care out of it. She did not go quietly or happily, but she went. After they left, I relocked the door, pulled out a cleaning kit, and serviced the guns I had lying around the house while drinking Jameson. Somewhere around 4, the alcohol overcame the fear, and I passed out for a few hours of troubled sleep. Now, a few hours later, here I am, paying for my sins. I've taken a pretty good look around the half-acre parking lot, and I've spotted some shell casings quite a few bullet-shaped gouges, and what looks to be around half a dozen bloodstains around the area. However, this went down. Annis and his crew did not go out quietly. A black Chrysler 300 pulls up at 940. Only an hour and 10 minutes late, and I step out of the Taurus, the comforting weight of the judge on my hip. The same idiot city council that will not allow licensed concealed carry around this town. Are content and happy to let me wear this monster openly in any place that isn't a school or church. I've had more than a few comments about what I've been compensating for by wearing this thing, but I ignore them. Let the haters start working with my clientele list, then we can make comparisons. I walk over to shake the hand of Detective Larry Barella, a halfway decent cop in a barrel full of rotten apples. Once upon a time, he and my brother shared a squad car before Steve got promoted to lieutenant then promoted further onto glory. Barella is in his own ride, not a city unit, so I'm guessing he's on his own time here. What's the word, Larry? I ask as I shake his hand. Not a lot, Brian. He nods his head toward my revolver. You see a rabbit chipmunk that scared you or something? See what I mean? So, what have we got here? I ask, to deflect further sarcasm about my sidearm of choice, as well as in hopes of getting out of this hideous sunlight. He grows serious sounds like it was quite the fireworks show. Looks like two groups of well-armed folks had a go of it two nights ago, so why nothing in the papers? He grimaces. Because there was nothing to report. Plenty of gunshots, some evidence of major trauma, but not a single body or a witness. Inside of the church is all tore up, but again, nothing inside but some screwed up furnishings and ashes. Church? I ask. We are in the middle of a very high-rent district in Ash Falls surrounded by multi-acre landscape lots surrounding million dollar homes. An odd place for a house of worship, especially since I was given to understand that this was Annis Black's home. Oh yeah, you've got to see this. Dude must've been running some whacked out cult of darkness or something. He turns and I follow him to the entrance. He pulls open the metal fire door and gestures me inside. Once my eye adjusts, I see what he was talking about. The inside of the building is one large room shaped like an elongated cross. The layout would be familiar to anyone who has spent some time in a Catholic church like I did growing up. From outside, the place is a featureless concrete box, implying the corners must be filled with something. After that, the resemblance ends. There are some very expensive-looking pieces of artwork on the walls and small sitting areas comprised of couches and stuffed chairs scattered throughout the building. No pews. Here and there on the floor, I notice small piles of ash, some still intact, some scattered and stepped in. I do not bother to tell the detective that the bodies he didn't see are still sitting here in the building. I turn to face him and notice him looking anywhere but at the piles on the floor. When I clear my throat, he turns to face me. So who caught the case? He laughs, an ugly short exhalation. What case, Drake? I've got a dozen unsolved homicides with corpses and witnesses and physical evidence waiting to be worked on back on my desk. Who the hell is going to take the time to look into an empty cult building with a few bullet holes, considering we've got no complaints and no witnesses? Dude that owns this place spent the majority of his time out of the country. We are having a hell of a time tracking him down. I nod. Understanding. Business as usual at AFPD. Gotcha. Well. Thanks for letting me in, I will lock up on the way out. He hesitates at the door, waiting to ask me who I am working for here. Discretion grabs him by the scuff of the neck, and he nods instead. Yeah, see you around, Drake. With that, the door closes behind him. I'm very surprised he had no questions or comments about the home invasion last night. He must be on his way in, heading for his desk at the precinct now, not having caught up on the overnights yet. At least I was saved the ribbing over that Charlie Foxtrot. Now that I am unsupervised, I am able to get a sense of the building that I thought was once the domicile of our richest and most reclusive citizen. There are no interior walls, no bathrooms, no kitchens. While I do not feel as though I am in a church or cult headquarters, I don't feel as though I am in a home either. If Anis lived here, the way he and his staff lived is nothing like what I would consider life. I turn to take a closer look at the pile of ashes. The fragments are tiny, granular, almost looking like black sand. Once upon a time, these were Anis's guards and servants. The MIB is how the rest of the members of the Circle of Five referred to the ten of them, all with pale, cadaverous skin. They went around in black suits with mirrored sunglasses, armed to the teeth, each able to lift the back end of a Mercedes. In the past, I had speculated that they were some species of vampire, and now, I was looking at the proof in piles on the floor. Looking around the room, I only find five more piles. This means that two guards of Anis himself are still uncounted for. My employees seem pretty rock solid on Annas being deceased, but I would feel a whole lot better if I found proof of that myself. Moving to the far end of the room, I can't help but noticing that the floor here had buckled upwards, as if something exploded beneath it. I look around. And sure enough, an unobtrusive door in the nearest corner opens to a stairway heading down into darkness. I draw my pistol, grab a flashlight off its holster on my belt, and head into the depths below. Something stirs in the spiritual world around the city. An implosion of sorts. It leaves behind nothing where once a center of power stood. At once, alliances begin to be made. Plans for conquest decided upon, troops marshaled from far and wide. Across the globe, powerful and eldritch creatures feel the opportunity to feed freely if they can rush to fill the void left behind by the departure of essential power. Around the city, dark forces hold themselves in readiness, unwilling to act too quickly, but willing to pounce on any weakness they might perceive when the struggle for power should commence. Nature abhors a vacuum. Whatever I was expecting to see when I entered the room below the nave, this was not it. A black stone, about ten feet long and six feet wide, is now sitting in two pieces on the floor, having slid off of whatever used to be holding it up at about waist height. It has been cracked in half, with the middle of the stone split down the center as if hit with a giant's axe. Whatever force destroyed the stone somehow erupted upward, leaving a blackened hole filled with twisted beams and tiles. I looked around with the flashlight a bit, until I located a light switch. Flipping the switch does not do a damn thing. I would guess due to the trash conduit and wiring dangling from the gap in the ceiling. I turned back around into the room, and that is when I noticed something I had missed when I walked in from the stairwell. Along the floor are thin trails of rust red, leading back into the darkness deeper beneath the building. I kneeled down and take a closer look, already knowing what I will find. Blood trails. Dozens of them, all leading from a point further into the darkness, all terminating at the fractured stone. A closer look reveals that the surface of the stone is also smeared and discolored, as if gallons of the stuff has been spilled over it. Playing my light along the half that has fallen on this side of the room, I can detect the remains of what must have been grooves carved into its surface, forming channels that led to the foot of the stone. Moving where the bottom of the stone would have rested, I confirm what I suspected. Three holes have been bored into the floor, all inside a shallow bowl-like area about two feet wide. The receptacle is discolored, a rich rust-looking red. Who knows how many gallons of blood have passed through this niche in the rock, I would guess over a period of many years, if not decades. Standing, I wipe my mouth with the back of my hand, swallowing hard caked on evidence of hundreds of blood sacrifices does not mix well with gas station coffee and the remains of last night's Irish whiskey. I move deeper into the room, following the trail of blood along the near interior wall, using my flashlight to confirm that there is a matching group of blood trails on the far side of the room. As I move deeper into the darkness, I can see what I have been half expecting and half hoping not to see. Five prison cells, all side by side against the far wall. The cell bars throw shadows against the cinder block wall behind them, but as I get closer, I notice that all the cell doors are open, the cells empty. Each holds a cot with a blanket, and a bucket in the corner. Each and every cell has blood trails leading out of it, evidence that prisoners were dragged. Bleeding from the cells toward the cracked stone that I now realize is an altar. This was not just a colony of vampires. They would have never wasted this much blood. What the hell was being done here? Inside the cells, I noticed something else. Scratched into the concrete floor is a collection of prisoner graffiti. Names, phone numbers, pleas for help, final requests. All scratched in shallow white grooves. These dying wishes would not have been visible to the writers down here in the dark. In the cell closest to the wall, I found a short nail, tip gleaming with use. It must have been passed from cage to cage by desperate people hoping to leave some sign of themselves behind. I wonder how many of AFPD's missing person cases would be turned into potential homicides by taking a look at the floor here. That thought brings me up short. How did the department not find this? No doors were locked. I didn't do anything special to get down here. The buckled floor upstairs would point out to the most experienced investigator that something was down here. Did nobody bother to take a look at all? As some natural skepticism of our local constabulary's dedication to duty comes and resets upon my shoulders, something catches my eye on the floor of one of the cells. My name. Scratched in white on concrete, I bend over to take a closer look, and all at once, I wish that I had listened a little closer to Jess that night. Jessica Drake died here. Tell Brian Drake. Well, something happened here before she died. But after she had enough time in this cage to scratch this out, what the hell was she doing locked up in a cage down here? When, for how long, and most importantly, why? As I try to make sense of it, I also notice something my subconscious has been trying to inform me for a few seconds now. My neck is burning. A solid bead of fire beneath my tribal tattoo. Never a good sign. Also, noises are emanating behind the door across the room from me which I assume leads to another stairwell. Someone is coming down the stairs. I exit the cell and place my back against the door closest to me. Across the room from the approaching steps, I aim the judge at the door, resting my gun hand over the top of my opposite wrist, pointing my flashlight to illuminate the door frame. Whoever this is, I will not be dealing with them in the dark. I guess I have about fifteen feet between the opposite door and me. When the sounds stop and the doors swing open, the prickling of my thumbs and the throbbing of my neck should have warned me. I was expecting a whoever, and what steps through the door is a whatever. It is hunched over on all fours, rear legs and lizard-like forelimbs, ending in hands all touching the floor. Short, furred wings are folded against the back. Worst of all is the head, looking like someone has superglued a green and purple squid onto this bat-like body. I know from experience that demons tend to inhabit the forms imagined for them by worshippers, and I have to wonder what crazed group of worshippers came up with this as a design worthy of veneration. Without warning, a voice rattles in my head. I've gone the Are you the guardian? If there's one thing that can make my hangover worse, it's telepathy. I shake my head and speak as clearly as I can through my clenched jaw and sudden nausea. I am not guarding anything. I do not wish to contest with you. I will depart. The formality of the words sounds strange to me, but if there is one thing spirits do not respond well to, it's sarcasm. The glowing red eyes over the twitching tentacles narrow for a moment, and the body tenses. If you With that, the creature unfurls its wings and leaps across the room at me. The thunderous noise of five PDX.410 shotgun shells being fired in a couple of seconds is bad under normal conditions. In an enclosed space, suffering from a hangover and adrenaline shock, it feels as though someone has split my head open while driving spikes into my ears. I almost hope that I missed so this creature can tear my head off and end my self-induced torment. Like all my hopes, this one is not to be. Halfway across the room, the thing has collapsed, smoke still rising from two holes in its head, and three more from underneath its body, where the rounds entered but were not able to exit. The eyes flicker, the tentacles twitch, and there is a sound like a hundred toilets being flushed at once as the body collapses into itself leaving behind a smoking morass of black tar-like goo. The smell is astonishing, and I retreat back to the other end of the room to get as far away from it as I can. As I understand it, destroying a creature like this only wrecks the physical form that was created whenever it was called from the other side. When the spirit is released, the physical form is destroyed in an instant, leaving behind the detritus of centuries-old flesh to decompose all at once. Most are at least that old as there are not many cultures creating these things to worship anymore. Contending with them is a dangerous business, best left to other supernatural creatures. Kinda Godzilla vs. Rodan thing, if you will. Religious relics will sometimes drive them off, but not reliably. They avoid fire if at all possible, but silver seems to be the only thing that will destroy them 100% of the time, like many other creatures of the night. And no one I have ever met in the last few years can tell me why. My monthly ammo bill is sky-high since the economic collapse forced everyone back into investing in precious metals. My ears are still ringing as I back into the stairwell to stop and reload, then I climb back to the main floor. No other refugees from the world of HP Lovecraft seem to be waiting for me, so I head back outside as I pull out my cell phone and reholster my pistol. This assignment has just taken a hell of a left turn, and I want some backup before I get much further here. The phone only rings twice this time as I step outside, squinting against the sunlight into the parking lot. Clarence's voice is an oral picture of exasperation. Now what, Drake? Clean up, Clarence. Aisle 5. Where? He's all business now. Annis' place. Okay, hold tight. Have someone there in a half an hour. Don't let anyone else in. A click as he's gone. With that, I dial Central Booking hoping that Jess is still in a cell sleeping it off. I need some answers, and apparently she's had them all along. The warfare is started, as foot soldiers begin to engage one another. Strengths are noted, and weaknesses are plotted against. Across the city, the human sheep can feel the conflict around them, but do their best to ignore what remains out of their sight, outside of their limited knowledge. At once, both the victims and the prizes here power over the city grants souls to prey upon, hearts filled with blood, and minds that can be driven to the worship of fear of the unknown. As the evening storm clouds roll in, a fog-like blanket of apathy and terror arrives with it. Here there will be no war for liberation, no voices leading refugees to a promised land, and all that will be here is a struggle to decide what powers will survive to prey upon those dwelling in the city along the river. The powers may come and go, but the battlefield of Ash Falls remains forever unchanged.